So my name is Pastor Rob. One of my jobs is missions, which I love. And uh, up on the screen, this is a couple places that we, uh, we go. And um, so we're going to be going to Guyana in Ju- uh, July. Yeah, it's getting coming up close. We have a team meeting this week. Um, uh, we're going to the Middle East this November. So if you're interested, you can put the next slide up, John. If you want to go on a trip with us, we got a couple people in that car that you may or may not know. Uh, you can join us in November, November 3rd. We are going, you can put the next stop. They are on their way to a visit. And what we do in that country is, uh, next slide, John, and visit with people. We hear their stories. Hey, tell us your story. These are refugees. And uh, then we have some coffee and more coffee, very strong coffee. And... Uh, I drink my wife's coffee in addition to mine because like, we switch classes there. Then we tell them a story. Say, hey, do you mind if we tell you a story about Jesus? And then we pray a blessing upon them. There are many other things you could do in Jordan, uh, schools and different things, but it's a great trip. If you're interested, you can go to our Keystone uh, mv.church, look under resources or email me and I'll get you information about that trip. But we'd love to have you. Wonderful experience. So last week, we dove into the book of Ruth. So uh, if you have your Bible, you can um, find chapter 2, or we'll have verses on the screen. This story takes place during Israel's dark ages. It was a 350-year period chronicled in the book of Judges, which we recently studied. One verse that summarizes this time period is Judges 21-25, which says, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Well, Ruth was an exception to that generality. Let's review quickly what we saw last week in chapter one. There was a famine in the land of Israel. So Elimelech and his wife Naomi moved to a neighboring country of Moab. Moab. Moving to Moab would have been a little controversial. People were probably telling them or maybe at least whispering behind their back, what, they're leaving the promised land? Where's your faith, Elimelech? God will provide right here. Who are your sons gonna marry? You know it's against our law to marry someone not of our faith and culture. The move was also a bit questionable in regards to where they were moving to. They weren't moving up to the east side or from, you know, Philly to Bel Air. They were moving to an area, Moab, which were like the hillbilly cousins of Israel. Now, I thought it would be appropriate to keep Pastor Mark's tradition of mentioning Kentucky, so I thought this would be an appropriate time. I'm just kidding. If you're moving to Kentucky, you know. But anyway, the Moabites, listen to that. They were like the result of an incestuous relationship between a man you may have heard of called Lot and one of his daughters. Moab means who, or Mo means who. Ab means father. What do you think that is? Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy? What an insult. Are you a Moabite? Who's your daddy? Oh, yeah, that was Lot and, oh, that's gross. There was bad blood between Israel and Moab. Years before, Israelites tried to pass through. Moab said no. Another time, the Moabite king paid off the prophet Balaam to prophesy against Israel. A lot of bad blood. But while in Moab, Naomi and Emelech, their sons found Moabite wives. They spent a total of 10 years there, and tragically, Elimelech, as well as the two sons, died. Naomi chose to go back to her homeland And you have to wonder if Naomi ever wanted to be in Moab in the first place. In that culture, she probably didn't have much of a choice but to follow along with her husband. 
We saw how Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-law, leaves everything to accompany her back to Israel. And chapter one ends on a sour note. Now, I'm not into classical music, my wife is, but uh, if there was ever a score change, this is the time. Chapter one, very somber, dark, and all of a sudden, chapter two, verse one, the melody or whatever they call it, it changes, the score changes to a bright and pleasant one and hopeful. So let's read it in verse one. Of chapter 2. It says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, this seems like a random statement in the point of the story, but it sets the context for this whole chapter. Naomi had a special relative. He was from the tribe of Judah, which is no small detail. We'll get into that just a little bit later. So, after this family fact in verse 1, the story continues in verse 2. It says, And Ruth, Though Moabite said to Naomi, let me just pause real quick. Five times in this passage, it says, Ruth, the Moabite. Who's your daddy? Who's your daddy, Ruth? I mean, just think about it. They want to make it especially clear that, hey, this is not, this, there's, there's something unique about this woman. She is an outsider. She's a foreigner. Can you appreciate the difficulty that she would have had to face coming back to Israel? Ruth tells Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I might find favor. And Naomi said to her, go, my daughter. So gleaning, let's just put a little context. Now, I I should probably have known what gleaning was. Um, It was tough to be a widow back then in any regard, but Ruth was determined not just to stay home. She was an initiator to go out and said, hey, we're gonna, I'm gonna find a way to provide for us. That's why she came back to help take care of Naomi. So I never heard of gleaning, and, uh, you know, but it's clearly it's in the law, it's in Leviticus, and probably maybe skip that little agricultural tidbit when I was reading Leviticus. If you wanna put that on the screen, Leviticus 19, nine and 10, just for a little background of what gleaning is. It says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your fields right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. So this is a command. If you own property, you weren't allowed to get the little edges. Now, for some of you, that might have been great because you're not like detail people. So, hey, this is perfect. You just get the, me like mowing the grass. Oh, that little edge there. Don't worry about it. But that was a law for these people. I think there's another slide. Uh, is that it? And you shall not strip the vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor. And for the sojourner, I am the Lord your God. So they were commanded not to harvest the edges of their field so that way the poorer people could enjoy that source of food. Verse three, so she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come apart to the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. I just wanna focus just for a few minutes on this one word. You know what word is? She happened. She happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. Now, I just many times just read over that, but for this week, it really struck me. She happened. Of all the fields that there are in Israel, she just so happens to pick the one that belongs to the relative that literally can rescue Ruth and Naomi. This is far more than a coincidence. It was not an accident that she ended up at Boaz's field. In the midst of the anguish and pain of their circumstances, God was at work in Ruth and Boaz. 
in a spectacular fashion while picking up leftover wheat in a hot sun, not knowing what was going on, what are we going to do here, how are we going to survive, dealing with everyone's condescending eyes, hoping those men would not abuse her. Surely she had no idea that this woman, that Ruth, that she was going to end up being the great-grandmother of the greatest king of all of Israel. And not only that, but she'd be listed in the bestseller of all time as the five descendants, the five woman descendants of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Maybe you feel like Ruth or Naomi this morning. You were just confused trying to figure out what in the world is going on in my life. You were like her in the hot sun waking up. I have no idea what today is going to bring. I have no idea how we're going to make it through this next situation. Maybe life in general is not just going the way you planned. This story encourages us to think about the greatness of our God. He is at work. And my challenge for you, as well as my challenge for myself, and it's the first point in your outline, is to embrace the sovereignty of God. Sovereignty refers to God reigning, sovereign. He reigns above all things. God rules over Satan, over sickness, over every person, every leader, every disease, every act of his creation, every circumstances that you may be struggling with today. God is sovereign. He reigns over all things. Now, you may believe in that doctrine of sovereignty, God being sovereign, but will you this morning personally embrace that doctrine as part of your life? Will your theology of this doctrine of the sovereignty of God prevent you from spinning out into anxiety? Will your theology help you to interpret what is going on around you in your life and what is happening to you that is out of your control? Will your theology help you to interpret the struggles with this heavenly perspective? Mark shared last week, Romans 8, 28, so we'll put it up on the screen again. It says, and we know that for all those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. If you love God, it's not for everybody, if you love God, it says, if you treasure him as best you can, you're, you're on that trajectory to, to finding God in your life as ruler. He says all things work together. That is one of the greatest promises. And it's like this filter. There is a heavenly filter. God has a filter. If you love Jesus, what does a filter do? What does a strainer do? It keeps things out. There is a strainer a filter over your life right now. If you love God, there's a filter that nothing is going through and touching you apart from the hand of God. That is the greatest promise ever. That doesn't promise everything's gonna go well because you know what? Reality is there's a lot of, a lot of suffering and that suffering may be part of God's will. But there is a filter above Ruth's life and Naomi's life and my life. One of the greatest promises, there isn't just bad luck all things work together for good. Listen to a couple of verses that I need to remind myself of. Genesis 50, 20. It says, as for you, you meant it for evil. This is Joseph talking to his brothers that sold him into slavery, 17 years in prison, abused. And this is the perspective that Joseph had. He knew there was a filter on his life. He says, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He didn't say God allowed it. God meant it for good. That is a really hard verse. You have to have an awesome big God to say, wow, how in the world could God work out all this? 
you think about all the stuff maybe that you've been through and people have been through, the tragedies, like how in the world does God, in his sovereignty, work things out for good? It's mind-blowing. Will we embrace the sovereignty of God? Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things. He is sovereign, Job is saying. That no purpose of yours can be thwarted. If there's anybody who knew about the sovereignty of God, it was Job. But he said, though you slay me, I shall worship you. Will we embrace the sovereignty of God? Naomi struggled with letting her pain define her. In chapter 120, she says, Do not call me Naomi, call me Mara. The Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me? She had terrible things happen to her. These were things all out of her control. Moving to Moab, multiple deaths. Embracing the sovereignty of God in your life doesn't mean that you're going to be cheery about cancer, betrayal, loss. But it does mean that we have a promise to hold on to. We have an 828 filter that says nothing is going to happen to me apart from the sovereign, loving, good hand of God. And he is somehow going to work it for his glory. Now sometimes we don't get the answer this side of heaven. And all we can do is trust in that promise. But God is at work like he was in Ruth's life. He is good. This circumstance didn't just happen. He is in this somehow, some way. There's a guy I know in our church. He was doing well. All of a sudden gets a diagnosis. Things were changing in his life. And, and he got the diagnosis of Parkinson's. It's like, oh, if you Google that, you're like, you think, oh my gosh. And you wonder, what is my future going to be like? Now, obviously, there's different levels of, of involvement, but he had to retire early. He had to make a choice. Will I, and I knew he believed in the sovereignty of God, but will he embrace it in his life? Will he apply that? Will his theology change his life? And it did. And I remember him calling and saying, hey, I had to retire. I got a lot of time on my hands. What do you need me to do? You know, what a perspective to have. I'm going to make the best of this. Maybe something big like that you're going through. Maybe far worse. Or maybe something simple. You know, this week, there was no big deal. I was going to run a race on Saturday. A little 5K. I wasn't in the best shape, so it wasn't that big a deal, but I was looking forward to it. Thursday, I just happened to step on something, and I twisted my ankle, which knocked me out of the race. Well, I could respond in something simple like that. Am I going to spin out of control and anger this? Or, why the, or am I going to receive this? Okay, this is a filter. I couldn't control that thing. Maybe I could have looked where I was walking, but, you know, it just stuff happens. And you may have little stuff like that. Maybe there's a person that's annoying. And you have to say, am I going to embrace the sovereignty of this neighbor or this coworker or this family member? And that is a question in your outline. Whose perspective will you have in trials? A heavenly one or an earthly one? The kingdom one or an earthly one? Will you have the filter 828 perspective? Charles Stanley, who died uh, last week, one of my great early mentors, listening to him. He said a statement when I was in my 20s. He said, he was talking about the story of Joseph. I think he's like, when stuff happens, instead of asking God, God, why, why are you doing this? Instead, he says, God, ask what? God, what are you trying to do for your glory? What are you trying to do? Whose perspective will you have? The second question is, what situation or person do you need to receive? What situation or circumstance do you need to receive as embracing God's sovereignty? God, this is out of my control. I receive this. Now please help me through this. 
that God filter was over both Ruth and Naomi. He was at work for good. Verse four, behold, Boaz came to Bethlehem. That's a little small but interesting detail. Boaz from Bethlehem. There's somebody else from Bethlehem that was important. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. If you're a boss, this is a good pattern for you to follow. I mean, just imagine this. Like he just walks in, hey, the Lord bless you. Cheery, good. Boaz was an awesome guy. I mean, he just, everything he does in this passage, but he's like that cheery, hey guys, how you doing? And they respond back. It's like, like Mr. Rogers, like, wow, this guy, this is all too good to be true. Verse five, then Boaz said to the young man who was in charge of the reapers, who's this woman? Whose woman is this? Maybe he noticed just the fact that she was new, a little maybe different culturally in some way, or maybe she was just a little eye candy. We don't know. Verse six, and the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. So Ruth, as we mentioned, but let's just talk about that a little bit just right now. Ruth coming back with Naomi was no small decision. Think about it. Think about what was going on in Ruth's life and what she did by coming to Israel. She was a Moabite. Surely the racism would be opening up to constant judgment. She was poor. That is a sign of God's judgment. She was a widow, damaged goods in that culture. What are the chances of a young Moabite woman finding a husband in Israel? What is the likelihood of her escaping poverty and her social status? Naomi tried to convince her to stay in her home country. And let's go back to 115 for a moment and look at what she says. She said, see, your sister-in-law has gone back. See, Orpah's staying. Do what she's doing. Go stay with her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For wherever you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there will I be burned, buried. Hopefully not burned. <laughs> May the Lord do so to me and more if also if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw this, she was determined to go with her. She said no more. I mean, can you, can you like picture a, a more... A more descriptive uh, passage of love. This is used at many marriage ceremonies. What a great example. It may sound strange, but a key component to true love is death. In your handout, it says, true love dies. True love begins with dying to what? Self. Dying, setting aside my plans, my agendas, my desires. Why? Because I value you. And that's what Ruth was doing. She was dying to self. She said, Ruth, I want to love you. I want to take care of you. I'm going to help you. Your life is going to be hard. I don't know if they're going to accept you back there. I don't know what's going through her mind. But she was loving in a sacrificial way. Tim Kimmel gives this definition of love that I adopted. It says, love is putting the needs of others above your own no matter what the cost. Putting the needs of others above your own, no matter what the cost. True love dies to your own needs, desires, and wants. In his commentary on Ruth, Robert Hubbard Jr. says, Ruth uh, took on uncertain future of a bitter widow in a land where she knew no one, enjoyed few legal rights, Given the uh, traditional Moabite-Israelite rivalry, faced possible ethnic prejudice, she gave up a marriage to a man to devote herself to an old woman 
in a world dominated by men. She's a good example for us. So the question I have for us and myself is, how is your life characterized by love? If you took inventory this week, say, okay, I'm just going to think about it. How was I loving this week? What did I do? Putting the needs of others above my own no matter what the cost. Did I love out of convenience and just, I'll get a little leftovers here, I'll do that. Or did I actually put somebody else's needs above my own? True love dies. Often we view people, this is sad but true, we view people as vehicles to get our desires met. Or, conversely, people could be obstacles that are getting in our way of our desires. Are people vehicles to get your desires met and obstacles to keep you from getting where you're going? Or do you say, hey, I am going to put the needs of others above my own no matter what the cost? Very Christ-like. Who do you need to love better is the next question. Paul's letter to the early churches, he says, let your love abound more and more to the Thessalonians, to the uh, Philippians. He says, my prayer is that your love would abound. We can all love better. None of us here are Jesus. We can all love better. So how is your love being demonstrated to your spouse, to your coworkers, to your neighbors? Do they see this love? Think specifically, even right now. God, who is it? Who you put it on my heart that I need to actually do something? Maybe write it down. Put it, make a little note. I need to make a phone call. I need to do something. Oh, my neighbor's grass needs to be cut. What can I do? God, help us to be like Ruth, to be more like our Savior, to die to self and see the needs around us. Let's go back to verse 7. She said, please let me glean and gather the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Early morning to late. Ruth was a hard worker. Verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not uh, go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged young men not to touch you? Notice that it was probably dangerous for what she was doing and who she was. And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the men, young men have drawn. I will take care of you. Hey, we might not think of drinking is a big deal, but instead of going to the well and doing all that work, he says, hey, don't worry about it. Use my vessels. My guys will take care of you. You stay on my field. And he tells the guys later in verse 22, he says, guys, do not touch her. I'm like, that must have been, I don't know what things were like, but it doesn't sound like good. Don't touch her. Maybe they had a history of that. You could be assaulted, Naomi tells Ruth, if she goes someplace else. Boaz was a good man. He is giving much grace to Ruth, an outsider. Verse 10. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? Ruth couldn't understand this grace. And maybe you can't understand, God, why would you give me grace? But this is what this story is about. Grace for the outsider. We are all like Ruth. We are all like an outsider. We are all in a bad condition. And God is reaching in and wants to touch us. Boaz was looking out for her well-being, providing for her. And in the same way, we have a Savior who's looking out. He provides. He wants to be the manna. He wants to be the bread of life to us. He wants to give us living water that we would no longer be thirsting for the things of this world, but we would be fulfilled and satisfied. Boaz is a great picture of our Savior. 
Verse 11, Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Verse 12, the Lord repay you for what you have done and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In your handout, I want to touch quickly on a basic principle. Here's the basic principle. God always rewards obedience. Always. God always rewards obedience. Boaz tells her, the Lord will repay you. Boaz was encouraging her, telling her God's truth, that her love and her sacrifice for Naomi will be rewarded. Jesus promises a hundredfold reward to those who give up the treasures of this world and follow him. Our obedience and love will always be rewarded by God. Now, we may not see that reward initially. We might not always see it in this world. But we will always be rewarded for following God and his ways. I think of the people in the Middle East that we're going to go visit, and I heard stories over and over again that of, man, hey, you talk about like, hey, Jesus, I'll come to Jesus. He'll give you a better life. Okay, that doesn't work. That may work in America and like televangelists and like, you know, not some areas, but that does not work in the Middle East. To say, hey, come, come to Jesus and your life will be better. Because you know what? A lot of times their life on the outside gets worse. Because now all of a sudden their family hates them. They maybe try to kill them. And, you know, and, and, and one of our guys, Nick, uh, people uh, that, that came to Christ on his way home from his baptismal service was martyred. So it's like his life did not get better. But here's the thing. The stories that we hear, here's what they say. Even with all the outward stuff, they say, Jesus is worth it. Like, that blows my mind. What? After this, and she sees scars, you're like, wow, you're homeless, and you're Jesus is worth it. And here's what's going to be even better for those types of Christians and for us as well. The reward of all eternity with God. We need to have God's heavenly perspective on rewards. Heavenly perspective that says, you know what? God always rewards obedience. I'm not giving up anything of this world to follow him. It's no sacrifice. Hudson Taylor, who was this great missionary and gave up so much things and sickness and, and death and just heartache, he says, I've never made a sacrifice. How in the world could you say that? Because he knew the rewards were gonna be better. Moses said the same thing. He says, I'm looking forward to the rewards. He gave up the temporal pleasures of here. There's a scale in each of our hearts and I want you to consider in your heart right now, what is that scale what do, you, what do you seek more, the rewards of what the world has to offer or God and his treasure? What is more important, even right now? God, what do I want most? I want this great career. I want this. What do you want your neighbor to come to know Jesus? Do you want to know God better? Are you seeking for him? I want to know Christ and his fellowship. Ruth told Naomi, I want your God. I want to help you. She sought something greater than the world's reward. When I choose to follow Jesus, the reward will be greater. When I choose to be obedient to him, the reward will be greater. When I choose to go overseas, when I give up money, the reward of obedience will be greater than the, world that the reward that this world has to offer. Do you believe that? Is it evident in your values, how you spend your money, what you do with your time, that I seek a greater reward? When you're tempted to cheat, to fudge some numbers, to stray, to click on some little seductive picture, Here's a question I want you to ask, answer. Ask yourself. You can put that on the screen. 
Do you believe by faith that the reward for obedience is greater than the reward of this world? This is worth the price of admission. If you just ask this like question to yourself, on your pursuit and you're trying to stay holy and you're trying to do the right thing and somebody's doing something at work and you gotta like not lie on the phone and tell the customer the wrong thing, you gotta not fudge the numbers, you gotta not you know, be alone with this particular person, not click here. This is what you need to ask yourself. On this scale, whose reward do I want more? Do I believe by faith that the reward for doing the right thing will outweigh the reward for this temporary pleasure, this temporary not being embarrassed because I messed up at work? Will I believe by faith that his reward is better? That is hard because a lot of times we don't. We do things and we're like, oh, I gotta have this or I I gotta do this or no, by faith. God says, my reward will always be better. Let's pick on verse 13. And she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, she says to Boaz, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. And at the mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in, in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. It's the first doggy bag. And when she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men, saying, let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. And also pull out some bundles for her, and leave for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. More grace, more compassion that Boaz was having towards this outsider. Verse 17, so she gleaned in the field into evening, and she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was about an ephah of barley. That's more than a half a bushel, probably more than she could have carried. Verse 18, she took it up and went into the city, and her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned, and she brought out the, and gave her what the food that she had left over, and after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, where have you gleaned today, and where have you worked? Blessed be the man who took notice of you. Remember, she just happened to be in Boaz's field. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, the man's name whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi has said to her, that man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. We're gonna spend the rest of our time just thinking about that whole idea of Boaz being a redeemer. Let's look at another Old Testament passage. This one's in Luke 25. You don't have to look, turn there. Do you have that, John? Luke, or not Luke, uh, Leviticus 25, 25. It says, if your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother had sold. Then after he's sold, he may be redeemed. One of his brothers may redeem him. Or his uncle or cousin may redeem him, or a close relative from his clan may redeem him. Or if he grows rich, he may redeem himself. What is he talking about? Redeem, redeem. Redeem means to buy back, to restore something to the original owner or its proper state of existence. By definition, a kinsman redeemer was someone who redeemed, who restored something that was lost. This could be a person's property, their freedom, even their name. In short, the kinsman was a rescuer, a restorer, 
A kinsman redeemer could redeem a member of a family who had been a slave. A kinsman redeemer might marry a close relative whose husband had died to keep the name going and keep her from poverty. The conditions, there are four conditions of a kinsman redeemer. The first one is they had to be a close relative. The second condition, I think I have the slide up there, he had to be willing. Just because you're a close relative, it didn't be like, hey, you got to take on this person. Like, I don't want to. I already got a wife. You had to be willing. He had to be able to pay the redemption price. And he must pay the price in full. They were the conditions. Unless the price was paid in full, there was no redemption. The Bible is full of illustrations, or some people use the word types. It's a special type of illustration. Things in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, that that teach us about the work of Jesus and what he has done. Boaz, in this passage, is an illustration. It's a foreshadow. It's a picture. It's a type of Jesus and what he has done. You remember where Boaz was from? Bethlehem. Remember who, uh, what family line? Elimelech? Judah. Judah was the ruler. That was the predicted line in Genesis 49 that the Messiah, the ruler, the one who would hold the scepter would come from the tribe of Judah. Just like Moses was a picture of delivering us out of slavery of Egypt and Noah and the ark were a type of salvation. Joseph, who suffered, forgave then power, and uh, when he got power, provided deliverance for his people. In this story, we see Jesus fulfilling this role of a kinsman redeemer. We are like Ruth. We're the outsider. We're the one with no hope. And Boaz is like Jesus. He was a near kinsman redeemer. If you want to put up John 1.14, it says, The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Jesus was near. He came near. He, ha- he was willing. He said in John 18, 10, 18, no one took their life from me. I laid it down. He must pay the full price. We know that's what Jesus did. It says in Ephesians 1, 7, in him we have redemption, buying back. We have redemption. How? Through Jesus' blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. We are like Ruth. Jesus is like Boaz. Here's the question I have for you. Are you 100% sure this morning that you have been rescued? As you die today, would you know for sure that, yeah, I have been bought. I am free. I know that I'm going to heaven. 1 John 1.13 says, you can be sure. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. You can know that you've been rescued. And it's not from anything that you've done. It's not from you being a good person. You doing religious things, it's through your redeemer. It's through a person named Jesus, a kinsman redeemer who was like Boaz and came in and out of his grace just took care of somebody. And that's what Jesus has done for us. And maybe you need to today receive that gift. Say, God, I need to be bought out of my slavery. Because you know what? Sometimes we don't, we don't become followers of Jesus because we're proud. We think, oh, I'm okay. No, you need a kinsman redeemer. And if you already receive that, hey, what's your life like? Are you, are you happy about that? Are you, grat- are you live a life of gratitude? Have you thanked God recently because what he has done for you? So this morning, let's embrace the sovereignty of God in every circumstance. Let's have a love that dies to our desires, our agenda, resources, or plan. And let's live for a greater reward, obeying God no matter what. Let's give thanks. Give thanks for a kinsman redeemer.
who while we were lost, stepped in to save us. Let's pray. So God, I thank you so much that you are my redeemer. I was a slave to my sin and God, you stepped in and you paid the price. You paid the price of your son's life with your blood. I thank you for that. God, I pray that you would help me to keep my eyes fixated on you, that I would follow you, love you more than anything. God, by faith that I would obey you, seeking a greater reward than this world has to give. And God, help us to embrace along that path your sovereignty. When things don't go our way, Lord, help us see you. Let's help us, God, to ask what, not why, and keep eternity in the equation as we go through the trials of this world. In Jesus' name.